Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. And today, I'm so happy to say that we're joined by Dr. Eric Feigelding. Dr. Feigelding is an epidemiologist and a health economist, a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists in Washington, D.C., chief health economist for Microclinic International. Very timely in January 2020, which I know feels like eons ago, he first recognized and he was one of the first to alert the media of the risk of COVID-19. He's part of the Federation of American Scientists' work to stop COVID misinformation and communication with the public. Welcome, Dr. Feigelding. I imagine you've had an extremely busy year. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Yeah, it's it's a very surreal year uh, because there's been a, it's a, quite a roller coaster in emotions and frustration, as everyone has. So I'm glad to be here. Actually, maybe we'll start there because as one of the first people to sound the alarm, I imagine that you feel like so many of us do in other situations where we're saying there's a train wreck. If you could go ahead and look over there, you'd see that there's a train wreck. And at every turn, it seems to me that you've been saying the train is continuing to hit another train. I mean, how does that wear on you personally? Yeah, it was really frustrating early on because in January and February, when I said, hey, a pandemic is coming, the pandemic is coming, I, I might as well have said aliens are right here or an asteroid is coming because it's that unbelievable to people who have never seen this one, something like this for over a hundred years. And, you know, my family was attacked early on, but, you know, in certain ways, the redemption is that is the ultimate negative outcome that, you know, you sometimes wish you were wrong. Right. But I think what's worse is that we fail to act. And even when we did wake up, we still fail to act. We did so little testing early on, so little contact tracing, such an unwillingness to recognize mask wearing and mandates are critical and frustration and, you know, that there's asymptomatic transmission, but then people didn't accept that for the longest time. And then there's airborne transmission, and then people didn't accept that for the longest time. And now we're always coming around, but we're almost always coming around a couple months too late and the public is so confused and our leadership has obviously failed us in so so many ways that's you know it's even a nightmare within a nightmare i don't have a witty comeback to that one it does i mean i have to say that i will kind of in the middle of the night early in the morning i'll go on your twitter feed uh, because i want to know what the real information is and you were one of the first people to say airborne transmission and you sounded this alarm over and over again. And it was astonishing to me that science has become so politicized. And I mean, certainly when we were talking about, let's have a podcast about politics and the law, I didn't envision that we would need a leading epidemiologist and that you would have to, I mean, how much of your time is spent just explaining to people some version of gravity exists, two plus two equals four. It, how much of your time is spent trying to battle misinformation and um, in the denial yeah. of basic scientific truth. Yeah, I think, you know, early on, you know, people just thought that if you just put out the science, 
people will listen. But now people and other scientists are now agreeing more that it's not the what you say, it's also how you say it. It's a battle of minds and a battle of the noise that's out there, you know, between us and the Scott Atlases and, you know, the Michael Caputos and trying to push herd immunity and all these dangerous, dangerous information, especially from our leaders. And especially, you know, um, with our CDC being muffled and silenced, it's even harder. It's an uphill battle, but the more you shout it at the rooftops, and if you shout it in a certain way that gets the lay people's attention, I think it's worth the time investment. How did this become a political issue in the first place? I mean, how did... Whether or not I have a cold doesn't seem to be a political issue. Whether or not I have a headache, whether or not I have a fever, did it start at the top? Was it President Trump just from the get-go peddling lies and disinformation and misinformation and people following suit? Or is it something more systemic in our society? I think it's both. And I first, you know, there is a saying that public health should be divorced from politics, but, you know, I was someone who ran for Congress as someone who spent 15 years at Harvard, faculty researcher and whatnot, because I realized public health is policy. Policy mm-hmm. is politics. And you're never going to get actual real change in public health without the policy leadership and the political power and the political leverage to do so. And and that was the one reality I, I walked in this pandemic with uh, having previous, uh, you know, political insights. And that was that it mattered to get political allies, to uh, gain a political voice in policies, to shout at political leaders and shout in a way that they would listen. So again, I, I'm on board the camp that to really get change, you have to do this. And Trump downplaying the virus on the flip side is also the same reason. He thought that if he could hide, muzzle this pandemic as long as possible, just say everything's okay, gaslight the, re- the whole country that everything's fine, even though his own advisors, including his deputy national security advisor, uh, Pottinger, who warned, similar to why I warned in January, that this is going to be a 1918-level pandemic bad. I hadn't planned to go down this particular route, but you brought up open up the economy that President Trump said, you know, if if I can get you all to look under door number two, then you'll ignore door number one, which is a, you know, once in a hundred year pandemic. And and he has styled this as a battle between the economy and the virus. And I'm hoping that you can help dispel that idea. It seems to me that the rest of the world or much of the rest of the world, has been able to understand that the way to have a thriving economy long-term is to mm-hmm. also try and address a pressing health and safety concern. And I'm hoping you can maybe shed some light on whether you really think it is the economy in one corner and health and safety in another. Yeah. And early on, I remember this debate many times. Uh, do you want to choose health or choose economy? And that is a false choice because you cannot have a fully functioning economy without uh, stopping this pandemic. And the best analogy, simple analogy is, you know, will you 
if you have velociraptors still roaming in Jurassic Park, and it's like, oh, they're just stray velociraptors. Here, kids, let's come to Jurassic Park and look at our zoo. Or if it was like a stray lion in your local zoo, people are not going to go to the zoo or Jurassic Park if there's these lions and velociraptors roaming. And similarly, there will not be the full demand in our economy, whether it's large conferences, conventions, travel, tourism, restaurants and dining and, and whatnot, without stopping the virus. And also in Sweden, uh, they let the virus kind of float freely with minimal uh, public health measures compared to their neighbors. And they didn't actually gain any GDP economic gains compared to their neighbors who did do the harsh lockdowns and prevent so many deaths. And and I think the people can't realize that, you know, now there's also long COVID, that the decimation of our workforce, right, long-term um, by long COVID, because there's effects not on your various organs. It actually affects your cognitive function. Uh, among how severely hospitalized, there was a study that showed an equivalent eight-point drop in IQ damage in cognitive function among these long-term severe COVID survivors. And that is huge. And even among mild, you still have several points of drop equivalent. That's, in terms of economic uh, potential, that's huge. You know, we can't rewrite history. We are where we are. And over 3,000 people a day are dying in our country. How many of those deaths were preventable? I don't know. You likely have a better sense of that than I do. And you answered this question a little bit, but I want to be specific for the listeners. You know, it's the middle end of December. What could we as a country do right now? If you could say, I can set national policy on this mm-hmm. issue. I can tell governors what to do. What would you tell them to do? Well, besides stop all the silly, you know, no mask mandate orders, the state level bans against local city and county uh, mask mandates and their enforcement. Besides that, I would say acknowledge the airborne transmission, especially indoors during wintertime right now in December entering even darker winter right now. Acknowledge you have to ventilate buildings. You have to buy air filters. You have to install UV germicidal units in HVACs or in various schools. These HEPA filters, like there are states like Washington State, they're considering a a potential bill to actually buy uh, thousands and thousands of HEPA filters for uh, certain venues and, and low-income essential workers. That is what, that's the kind of leadership we need. And contact tracing, you know, we still have, I don't think the seven-day contact tracing is a good idea. We actually should go back to the 14-day. And relief, relief for workers and businesses. Many of the countries are paying their businesses and workers 70, 80, and sometimes 90 cents on the dollar in terms of their lost wages and revenues compared to last year. So they're actually paying people to stay in because that is equivalent to like a, a more equivalent, more powerful lockdown because people has the motivation to stay back and not wander outside and try to work and keep spreading the virus. And those countries, you've seen the, their lockdowns are way more effective than some of our lockdowns because our lockdowns are very loosey-goosey. 
in six to nine months, let's start at the end and then work our way back. Do things look quote unquote normal? Does it look like February 2020 or is that a a bit further out? I think it's going to be a new normal. The world will never, ever be the same um, pre-January 2020 versus post. And it will not be this you know, calamitous where everyone is having such high numbers of deaths and cases, hopefully. But I think our consciousness of wearing masks will still continue, um, especially since we know we won't be able to defeat this virus until at least 2022. Because, heck, most of the world, developing countries, do, do not even have enough vaccines for even half their population. The vaccine rollout is going to be very uneven. And I think the new normal is that people will, you know, just like, you know, you visit various restaurants that have a certain grade of quality and, and whatnot, people are going to be much more conscious of, does this place have good ventilation, good germicidal hygiene um, programs, you know, are we able to skip certain things that previously required meeting in person? Are we, you know, is the is the trade-off worth it? And I think real estate also will change a lot along with it, as people have noticed this year. But it will be a new normal. And for schools, which is the number one question people ask, yeah. I think schools really, really have to consider how they re, how they build schools. Uh, because a lot of our buildings and our schools are completely outdated. They're anywhere from 50 to 70 years old sometimes, and they have zero, almost zero ventilation in many of their classrooms, especially since you can't open the windows. And a lot of these, you know, we're talking about infrastructure week, I think we will have to rebuild so much of our buildings, our homes. And again, the social consciousness about this virus will change everything that we do and i think the appreciation for public health you know you know i, I want to say something about public health but the difference in public health and medicine is public health we tell people to buckle their seatbelt, wear a helmet medicine is basically treating at someone after they get into a car crash right mm-hmm. but yeah you save 100 lives by putting in the helmet law seatbelt law putting a crosswalk at this binner's intersection Previously, no one ever appreciated. I want to pick up on two big things. The first is you talked about schools. Now, would you, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you seem to have a better one than the rest of us. Um, (laughs) Would you send a elementary school kid, a middle school kid back to school in fall 2021? Yes, I would. Um, Because I have the hope (laughs) I have the audacity to hope that we will have better HEPA filters and ventilation protocols. I have the audacity to hope that we um, have more vaccines and we will hopefully require vaccines or provide them for all teachers. And hopefully the vaccines for children will also be ready by uh, late spring or summer because the, all the clinical trials for vaccines are doing a separate trial just for children. And so I'm hopeful that by the fall, we will be able to deploy these vaccines. And just like you need vaccinations to go to school for all these other things like measles, mumps, rubella, we'll have this requirement. If you could have 
three minutes with somebody who says, I'm, I don't know if I should take these vaccines. And then I want to ask you a little bit more detail about these vaccines. But just first off, if you could say, here are a few things I want you to know about the vaccine. Would you tell everybody to take it and why? Yeah. So first of all, yes, I would definitely take the vaccine at the first available chance. And we've had vaccines for, you know, decades and decades. And polio, people don't remember, but 50, 60 years ago, polio used to decimate, decimate huge numbers of children, crippled them for life. People have forgotten about that. People have forgotten about the hundreds of millions of people who've died of measles 100 years ago. In, in just the last 100 years, we've literally saved a couple hundred million lives because of the measles vaccine. And we've saved uh, millions more of children from being debilitated with polio. So we know vaccines work and they, they're safe and they save lives. As for this vaccine, first of all, the well, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, it wasn't funded by warp speed. It was actually you know, developed in Germany. It wasn't U.S. funded. So any of the U.S. conspiracies, no, they, they don't apply. And the mRNA vaccines have been around for, there's been many, many other mRNA vaccines. And, you know, the, the mRNA therapy the science goes back many decades too, as well. It's going to win the Nobel Prize. And in the trials, you have to realize, you know, they've compared the safety signals in these published trials and although there are some adverse ones like headaches and fatigue, for, for serious adverse events, for deaths, for any of these critical ones, there's equal numbers, equal percentages between a vaccine and a placebo. And when you see equal numbers, that means there's no effect from the vaccine. Because if, if the vaccine and placebo prevented equal numbers of infection, we would know that the vaccine just does diddly squat and doesn't work. But we know that it works in lowering the infections huge amounts in the vaccine group versus placebo. But for adverse events, they're almost identical versus placebo, which means there's no effect more than the placebo. And, you know, just so you know, over the next coming months, there's going to be tens of millions of people who get vaccinated. But you know what? During that same time, if you vaccinate 10 million people over two next two months, there will be... 4,000 heart attacks, 4,000 strokes, uh, a couple of thousand uh, cancers, as well as 14,000 people who die anyways among 10 million people over two months. And people will hear stories and they feel like, oh, is it really the vaccine? But you have to realize there are these numbers of background events that will happen. And so I tell people there is no elevated risk compared to placebo or background risk. And we know that we tested and tested this in 500 people. We tested the Moderna in 30,000. We tested the Pfizer in 44,000. And the Oxford vaccine is, is done even more people, 50,000 or more worldwide. I think it's so important that you mentioned that of that group that gets vaccinated, people will get sick. People will have yeah. heart attacks. People will have yeah. cancer. Horrible things will happen, unfortunately, and that would have happened without the vaccine. That That is not a cause of the vaccine. And I think what you said is incredibly compelling. And one thing I hear in response is, but we don't have any long-term studies. And that, by definition, has to be 
true to a certain extent with right. with respect to these particular vaccines. So I'm going to ask you kind of a compound question, which is you said, um, you know, mRNA vaccines. Could you explain what that means? And do we have any history with respect to these vaccines? Are these first of their kind or, you know, what gives you hope for, once you explain what it is, what gives you hope for long-term that we don't all drop dead in seven and a half years from the vaccine? Right. <laughs> right. So first of all, there's many kinds of vaccines. mRNA vaccine uh, is, is, the, is the Moderna and Pfizer. The Oxford one uses a different adenovirus. The, the Chinese ones use the inactivated vaccines. And then there's another protein-based vaccine. The mRNA, what it does, mRNA is like the blueprint, is the working blueprint of your body. The DNA is the long-term archival blueprint. The working blueprint that tells your body it's the recipe for how to make a protein. And the protein that it makes is the spike protein of the virus. It's not the whole virus. It's just the instruction to make the spike protein. And it teaches your body, your cells to make it. Your body cells make it. And it's a training program. Vaccines are training program. It's like when you tell your, your kids on the first day of school in first grade, this is your teacher, Mrs. Larson. She's really nice. She won't hurt you. But don't go running off after school with a stranger. And a vaccine does the same thing. It teaches your body, this is a spike protein. You want to learn how to attack the spike protein. So next time you recognize this spike, it's like your you know, fingerprint or Apple facial ID. Recognize this and next time attack it when you see it. But there's been many mRNA vaccines. So and this is just, this is why we actually had this vaccine. We're able to develop it actually within less than a month after we had the sequence in January. So we technically were able to develop it very quickly because it's just a training tool and we have the technology already existing to do so. And so that's why I'm saying don't be afraid and don't be afraid uh, of listening to scientists and don't listen to the conspiracy theories out there. Now, you know, this is a question on everybody's mind and I've we've talked about this in a couple of different ways, but let's say you are 50 years old, 40 years old, you don't have underlying health conditions. When can we expect that you would get a vaccine? And can you, at that point, is there going to be a hallelujah moment or what can we expect Mm -hmm. after that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, So first of all, the priorities on the currently ranked are the healthcare workers, which is about 21 million, and then essential workers. Now, essential, I put in quotes because Homeland Security technically decides essential, but every state has the ultimate decision process of who is considered essential. And that's about 80 to 90 million people. And then there is the group 1C. So healthcare workers is 1A, essential group is 1B. The groups 1C are the high risk. Also, 1A also includes nursing, elderly nursing residents. The group 1C is the high-risk people, um, besides nursing homes, who are elderly or have a comorbidity. That is actually tricky because if you have a comorbidity, um, it's not well-defined yet. Again, it's up to every state. And you could see some privileged line skipping of, I have this comorbidity, and Privileged people will get a doctor's note to say that they mm-hmm. need it because of an illness. And so we actually don't know how big group 1C is. It depends on how, how you classify illnesses. 
But for the general lay public, the general general population, that don't fall into 1A, 1B, 1C, it's going to be later this summer. You know, some, some optimists say late spring. I'm not sure about that, given the new production um, and delivery uh, timetables that, that I've seen. But I think for general population, later this summer is the better time point. Now, that's when they're starting to become available. And we need huge numbers. Now, herd immunity is a term in epidemiology, but but it's a term for vaccinations, which the other side has completely bastardized into natural infections, which is not a thing. So for vaccinations, uh, if we hit 75, 80% vaccinated, then I think it's pretty safe for uh, you know, for the rest of the remaining 20%. But we're not going to be at 80% for quite a while. No, vac- vaccine hesitancy has dropped. But I think as more people take them, as more of the doctors are much more adamant and seeing all the trials and more vaccine comes out, I think people will take them. That's my hope. And will 75, 80% take them? I'm hopeful because the vaccine hesitancy is dropping. And, uh, you know, the number of people who say they'll take them, even on this generic question, has jumped from 63 to, I think, 71% last month. So I think as it rolls out, more people will take them. And the more people take them, the faster we can get to normal recovery. Yeah, well, you just hit my next question, which is, can you explain the real definition of herd immunity and how that's been changed? And yeah. Um, and I, I did ask before we started recording, I asked, you know, and you, I think you saw this on Twitter, friends and family for some, you know, what are your questions for uh, Dr. Feigolding? And um, here's one from me. So I'm a law professor. I teach in rooms that vary from capacity to, let's say, 120 people to 20 people. Mm-hmm. If you were me given about what you know, do you think I can say to my students, we're going to be able to hug and be in person in late August, or is that realistic for Halloween? I know it's, you know, I don't typically hug my students. Let me just say that clearly, but I think, you know, what I'm getting at, which is, you know, can I give them a hearty high five and say, it's nice to see you off of zoom. You think in the fall semester. Yeah. For fall semester, if all our ducks fall in a row, Vaccine hesitancy falls off and more people are vaccinated. Production schedules are good. And we don't have too many drama with the second dose. I'm hopeful. I am hopeful on a good case scenario. Yes, we can go to school. By then, enough people will have been vaccinated, readily available, vaccines mandated for any in-person people attending in person. If you're not vaccinated, stick to Zoom, uh, online lectures remotely. If you are vaccinated, come back to the lecture hall. And I'm hopeful that schools will have woken up about ventilation, filtration, uh, germicidal UV disinfection. And if we have that airborne uh, virus conscientiousness instilled and rebuild, renovate, uh, upgrade our buildings. By the way, Germany is giving 100,000 euros, $120,000 to upgrade every single school and public building in the country. That is a level of commitment we have not yet seen. But if we wake up to that reality, and hopefully Biden administration has that leadership to do so, I think we can do all these things and more and get our schools 
uh, colleges, high schools, elementary schools back. But if any of those things slip up or are not executed well, we could easily be extending this purgatory of of our children not being to attend full-time school. But by this time next year, by like late December next year, hopefully January, I think everything will be back to normal in the U.S. Now, will the pandemic be eradicated worldwide? Not sure. There's discussions that we might not even have enough vaccine for developing countries to fully vaccinate until 2024. That's like the pessimistic view I've heard. I got a lot of questions from friends or from friends who are a little bit older than you and I are. Should I wait? And I know that maybe this is an unfair question, but I should uh, have some preventative health appointments. Or there's this thing that I think I should have checked out. We're going into a dark winter. We're in the middle of a surge. Do you feel comfortable sending people who are over 65, over 75 into a medical building? How do we weigh these risks? Yeah. So my answer is, and this is a problem because this answer is not applicable to everyone. You need premium masks. I honestly believe that you know, there's evidence that double layer cloth masks work better than single layer cloth masks, which work better than fleece or thin bandanas. But um, I think for especially these vulnerable, high risk people, they need premium masks and potentially because they're so high risk, maybe even some eye protection um, because we know the virus can spread also via your eye if you catch it there. Um, because that's also what hospital workers, basically hospital workers go uh, work every day with premium masks, face shields, uh, or other eye protection and other gowns. Now, this whether you need to go in a spacesuit depends, but I think if you need to get a medical procedure checked out, I think you should go see a doctor. But you should take as many PPE protections as possible. We've talked a lot about policy. I think last big substantive question for you is, uh, it sounds like you are optimistic about the Biden administration. And mm-hmm. we've talked about um, you know, what you can do, I think, in the short term and kind of the medium term. If President-elect Biden said to you, you know, I would like you to fortify our nation, because this probably won't be the last time we talk about this. What should we think about? I mean, what should we think about so that in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, um, we we don't need to all be, you know, scared and up all night following you yeah. on social media, that we've really retrofitted our country against a, the next 8.0? Yeah. Um, and that's a really good question. And because, you know, I, I believe in the mantra, uh, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And I think... You know, first of all, we had a pandemic playbook that was discarded. And, uh, you know, in certain ways, the best uh, plans went south, uh, even with good planning. So I would say to make fortify against, you know, future political drama of, say, administration that is science denial, is that you fortify the local and state leaders with uh, science, with funding. You fortify the general public about these you make it a part of the social psyche where just like buckling a seatbelt, it took many years to install seatbelt laws, helmet laws, anti-smoking measures, cigarette taxes, but 
it was it was a 50 state thing. It wasn't just one day the federal government flipping a switch. Dr. Feigelding, we learned a lot from you. I want to end this podcast by asking you the same three questions I ask all my guests very briefly. Number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Whew. Don't give me any prep time. Um, I would like to invite Einstein because I know it's cliche. Einstein actually discovered, there was his third grade paper. He actually discovered Brownian motion, uh, which is what responsible for airborne viruses. And I'm really fascinated by space time and those kind of things because I'm a Star Trek and Star Wars nerd. Um, so I guess as a nerdy scientist, Einstein would still be my nerdy <laughs> go-to answer for that. Now, you're stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Oh, last meal? Oh, mm, I... Not necessarily your last. Somebody could rescue you. Let's be optimistic. <laughs> if I could bring one meal, I would like this beautiful veggie dumplings that my grandmother used to make. And she's passed away. I haven't tasted it in so many years, but it would bring me so much joy and memories of my childhood. And uh, it's healthy, it's delicious, and it's, it's, it's kind of like my soul food from my childhood. I love that, and I get that. And the last question is, you get one superpower for one hour. Mm. I have a guess, but what is it and why? Um, I would like Thanos's uh, super ultra power <laughs> gauntlet that he could snap his fingers and rewind this year, rewind time so that we could restart this and we could prevent all the millions of people who've been infected and hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people who have died. And in a way that we could still see that this, what could have been because of bad leadership and what we could have done to save all those lives. And I think preventing 2020, our current timeline, though this worst case scenario that we are in right now, if that was my only superpower, I would rewind this entire year and start over so that we could actually learn from this year and not repeat it. Dr. Feigelding, I had a terrifying and wonderful time speaking with you. Thank you very much for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much. You can find Dr. Feigelding on Twitter at Dr. Eric Ding. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners for your support. This episode is a little bit different than what you might be used to, and but I think given the response, uh, we have a lot of answers to questions, uh, and I hope you find it as useful and educational as we do. And uh, Dr. Feigelding, the next outside or hopefully inside drink when you're in Los Angeles is certainly on me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you.